and welcome to Word Up, a series of podcasts hosted by Oxford University Press with Helen Prince and guests. Welcome to Series 2 of the Oxford Education Podcast. In Series 1, we prefixed each of our podcasts with some etymology that explored the story behind some of the standout vocabulary from our conversations. Well, now we're into series two, we thought it would be really fun to set the scene for each discussion with a quotation or mini extract relating to the topics that we cover. So to start us off this week, here's a quote from Winston Churchill. He said, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. So this morning, I am utterly delighted to welcome to series two of these Oxford University Press podcasts, Zoe Enser. Zoe has a list as long as your arm of attributes and professional wizardry. Let me go through some of them. She has been a classroom teacher for 20 years, head of English, senior leader, responsible for staff development, school improvement. She is now the lead specialist English advisor for Kent, working with the education people and is an evidence lead in education. She's a mentor for the Charter College, writes for the TESS, and is a co-author of Generative Learning in Action. She's currently working on CPD curriculum, Making Conditions for Growth, which is a book about staff development, which I think comes out any minute now. In addition to all that, is studying a literature MA, and somewhere in amongst that, she fits in time for running every day. Zoe, a huge and very amazed and awe-inspired welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Helen. Really appreciate uh, you asking me to be here. I guess one thing that I should probably add to the list is I did start my career as a teaching assistant. So I spent two years uh, working in schools before my teaching career started. Um, and, and I think that's always a really interesting way in. Yeah. So I've seen it from lots of different angles. That's really inspiring. Wow. So all our teaching assistants, you hardworking and cherished professions that, that, that you are. That's inspiring, isn't it? Yeah, it was a wonderful role, really, really valuable. And uh, yeah, in, in my early days of teaching, I, I would sometimes very much miss that, that particular angle, but uh, yeah. they all have something exciting to bring. What was the key difference between going from TA to teacher, would you say? I think it's the kind of the level of intensity with those relationships. You know, in my first year as a TA, I was working for 14 hours a week with one particular student and another eight hours a week with another student. So how I, I understood them was yeah. very different to perhaps in a class of 30 where I might only see them for three or four hours a week. Um, and so I could really understand and help them to unpick that learning in perhaps a different way that I could as a classroom teacher. Yeah. Fascinating. It's really vital, isn't it, for us to change our perspective? Do you remember mm. when you did your teacher training? I, when I did my teacher training over in um, Canterbury, one of the first things we had to do was shadow a pupil. Yeah. And that concept of going from geography to history to science and your head changing constantly. It, it was hugely valuable to me, though, uh, obviously going into teaching because I'd seen what was going on in all of those different lessons yeah, and the, the different approaches that were being used in order to support all students. Yeah. And I bet you sat there going, oh, I wouldn't do it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't possibly <laughs> comment on that. But uh, again, I think, you know, you were see I, I was seeing it from that angle of, well, what's working for this student and how can I scaffold and support them? 
perhaps differently to what the classroom teacher can do at this moment and how can I, I be used as a resource yeah. and obviously sometimes working with that student on a one-to-one but other times working with groups of students again scaffolding and supporting them differently yeah. to how yeah. I perhaps would as a classroom teacher. So one of my first questions I've got for you um, I now wonder if that's got it, its roots in what we're just talking about because this this series of podcasts is very much going to be around metacognition. And I wondered where your passion for metacognition arose and when that happened. And maybe actually we're beginning to touch on some of the answers there. I think it really came from seeing that power, perhaps, mm-hmm. of uh, talking things through with students. So I, I would see a teacher explain a concept and then, then look at that sort of slightly bemused, baffled look on the student's face that I was supporting. And then I would have to rethink and go through some of those processes about learning myself. You know, how did I understand that task? Mm. How did I understand that topic? And then what did I need to perhaps try to make more visible to the student I was working with? And that was something that translated there to when I was working with whole classes and thinking, well, again, what do I need to model for them? What do I need to make really explicit? And how can I use things like prompts and and questions to support that process with them as well? Fascinating. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with metacognition, we get lots of parents listening to this who might not be in in our profession. Can you give us a, a good definition of what is metacognition? I think The simplest definition that you come across is the uh, idea that it's um, thinking about our own learning processes or thinking about our own thinking. So uh, we have cognition, which is the kind of how we process information and knowledge. And then it's what we see about that process. So looking into it almost as if you were outside and thinking about that process. And we it used to be quite often called sort of interchangeably learning to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that people might be more familiar with. And, and uh, those were things that were often used in, in tutor time sessions to support students, again, to think about their learning processes and, and what they needed to do with that. It sits underneath the uh, kind of umbrella of self-regulation. So it's got different elements there. So you've got self-regulation as the main aim, so yeah. how we are doing things and the tasks that we're undertaking. And then within it, you've got cognition, metacognition and motivation. And they sit very closely together underneath that. In practice, if I was to walk into a classroom, how would I know that the teacher is doing some metacognition? (laughs) (laughs) I think modelling has been really, uh, it's kind of really taken off over the last few years. um, And people are are very keen to use that in their classroom. So you may well see a teacher who is reading, Mm. um, actually talking about the processes they're going through. So I might read something to a class and I I would pause and say, Mm. well, I'm actually now I'm going to make a prediction about what's going to come next. Um, Or I'm going to think about, well, what's this like that I've come across before? Is there anything that I've read that's similar to this? Or do Mm. I recognize even things like do I recognize the author and the title? Mm. We're starting to unpick that metacognitive process and getting students to think about um their their kind of toolbox that they've got available to them in their prior knowledge Mm. in order to be able to tackle those challenges that are coming up I think that's such a crucial area for us isn't it within English teaching but within all areas of the curriculum that we're we're showing that process of learning as a model you know just from from up leveling 
still don't like that word, sentences on the board, you know, how do I go from a really, you know, uninspiring construction sentence to something that's going to really engage and and show not tell and all those things and the process of going from one to the other and talking that through mm. yeah I think that's a really important moment for for young people to understand that we go through those oh that wasn't as good as I could do it and so let's change this or let's swap that round or mm. let's let's add in another layer of meaning and, and the process to get there yeah I'm a big fan of um things like slow writing so we, with slow writing, you do exactly that. So um, we go piece by piece and mm. I will model that. And so if I say I want to start something off with a, a simile or mm. I'm going to use a metaphor in my first sentence, I'll explain around that choice and why I'm making those choices and what I want it to achieve, but also then draw on things, again, that I've, I've come across before. I'm going to use this metaphor because I've seen it successfully used elsewhere. So all the time it's making those links and, and then building those schemas around that information as well as we access that prior knowledge and then extend it. And I think metacognition can really be that bridge between those, you know, mm. what are we doing now and what did we do previously? Um, and even things like retrieval can be quite metacognitive because mm. all the time, you know, you're talking about pulling that information together, thinking about how you might then apply that to this new question which is asking you to retrieve that information from before. Yeah, so important, isn't it? And and so much of that then comes down to talk. The new Speak for Change report talks about how vital talk is as the currency of learning. Mm. And definitely really is, you know, that's the conduit through which we deliver all our understanding in the classroom and being really clear about that process, mm. moving, moving from not knowing and and working through why we don't know and getting to a point where we do absolutely yeah definitely key and so how does how will that support the learning of our young people well again like I said before it's going to draw on the toolkit that they've got so um, it will help them to see where they've faced challenges before Mm. it will help them to think about what they did when they were tackling that particular concept um, or problem in the classroom so that that will again lay out the, the the areas that they've got available to them and help them to plan if we're being metacognitive as well it's about monitoring our progress mm. and that can be quite motivational actually for, for young people and we talk a lot about engagement and, and and those kinds of things in the classroom and what I think we're really talking about there is that motivation to learn And so if they are understanding, well, this is where I've been successful before. These Mm. are the things that I've got available to me that I can use for this task here today in front of me. Then all of a sudden we're empowering students to be able to do that and to feel motivated. There's nothing better than seeing the the progress. You know, I I was writing this morning and I like to do a little word check and I go, right, okay, I've done 500 words this morning. Yeah, Yeah. all right, they might not be the full right 500 words yet, but it's uh, it's going in the right direction. Yes. And it's the same same with students um, and seeing that and understanding that and understanding why they're making those decisions as well. Equally, it can highlight for them where there are gaps and where they might need to find out something more, do a little bit of research. Again, that's something I'm very aware of myself and, and I'll kind of be writing or working on something, mm. pause, say, actually, I need some more time to reflect on this or I need mm. to go and search something else around it or ask for some support. And uh, again, students understanding that is really empowering. 
and uh, you know I've had students who were, were very metacognitive mm. and uh, they had been doing some retrieval work and they said this is fantastic because I can see which are the areas that I've struggled with today I'm going to go away tonight and I'm going to look at this and then wow. when I come back to do this, I was very lucky. And when <laughs> they, I come back, they are great students. <laughs> they are great students. <laughs> we might get one or two of them in a class. <laughs> but but the more we talk about this, then I, I guess the more they become aware of that and they mm. can start doing it. And so it's their way in. It's their route into being able to do that. And and indeed talking to each other about it, supporting each other. You know, I, I, I missed this bit. I wasn't sure about this. What do you think? What could I put in there? And as long as we're checking that there aren't misconceptions being embedded through yeah, those kind yeah. of processes, then uh, again, that can be really important for students to feel empowered, build independence, become lifelong learners, as opposed to, well, we're doing this today because this is what we're doing in the lesson. Yeah. So, so important and lovely to have that as sort of a, a group work activity and, you know, that sharing, that self scaffolding almost of, of what they're doing in order to move forward and and motivate. And actually, doesn't that really build resilience, you know, because if you can see yourself moving forward and and being responsible for your own learning and understanding what that means. Absolutely. Then then you're innately much more resilient, which, of course, is what we're trying to build towards. Yeah, you, you understand where um, the issues might lie and you can start to, you know, in the same way if we're planning something as a teacher or, or as a, you know, as a whole school, you think perhaps about what those barriers might be first, mm. but then think about where you can overcome them. Uh, and that is a, about resilience. Uh, and that really does make a difference mm. to how you feel about your own learning then as well. And I think possibly might just be my own experience, but I think we're quite good at this at, at A-level. And mm. when we get, you know, to our key stage five and we're we're not bad at key stage four, but maybe maybe what what does it look like to be good at this at key stage three or key stage two? Um, I, I think probably you'll recognize the same things with those students uh, and, and we possibly put more scaffolds in mm. and, and scaffolds are a kind of an interesting one because you need to know how much to scaffold and, and mm. where to withdraw those to allow the students but I think uh, you might see more prompts um, you know even things like keywords on the board and talking around those when students are completing a task and getting them to think about when and why and how they would use that can support that metacognitive process. I have had some people say to me, well, you know, this metacognition is, is lovely. You know, we see it at key stage four, we see it at key stage five, but students need to be, you know, at a certain place to do that. Mm. And actually, I would disagree. I, I think it does depend on their knowledge about the task and they need to have experienced things before. Mm. But um, as long as we're making those links and supporting them to make those links, very young children can be very metacognitive and talk about their own learning. Uh, perhaps using a slightly different language, but they can do that and, and show that frequently. I think even in early years, you will see children who are going through those processes and thinking about, well, when did I do this before? Oh, oh yeah, okay, and how mm. can I do this now? And, and they're, they're, you know, that, that leads to them solving all sorts of incredible problems that we see even with those younger students. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and again, with SEM, we might support students more, give them more scaffolding to do that. But there, there isn't anything innate saying, well, therefore, you can't because you are a student of SEN or you're a younger student. You can't be metacognitive. We need to build on it and we need to work towards it. So we have those students like mine say, you know, my one saying, 
I'm going to go home tonight and I'm going to explore <laughs> this because I'm in charge of my own learning. Yeah. Fabulous. You know, to, to, to get to a place where our young people are telling us that is just, just brilliant. I'm sure you're right that it's about equipping, furnishing our children with the right language. You know, if we've got yeah. the key words, if we've got the vocabulary, then we're, we're away because there's a there's an articulacy that they can draw upon to describe what it's like to to learn and to move forward and and what it is they need to do next in order to be successful absolutely and that comes back to our own clarity when Mm. we're modeling and and we model speech as well so it's not just about writing model on a visualizer or modeling reading yeah but when we speak and when we we explore things um we can explain the processes that we're going through in order to reach the conclusions that we do Mm. Do you think there are many misconceptions around metacognition in our in our teaching world? I do think there are. Um, I think one of the biggest misconceptions was the idea that this was something that was a, a skill that could be um, decontextualized, that it was just transferable. And so mm-hmm. um, perhaps going back to some of the, my my poorer experiences of it earlier on in my career, um, we were given things like learning to learn programs to, to do in um, tutor time where you'd get students to talk about it. And of course, as with anything, unless you're actually relating it to something that you're experiencing every day, yeah, something tangible, absolutely, it becomes a problem. So we talk mm. about it and, and they might nod along enthusiastically and do the task in, in the tutor session. But Bless then they'd go, <laughs> they'd go along to maths or they'd go along to history yeah. and they wouldn't do that. And, and I think the, uh, the EEF report on metacognition is really useful in terms of this because it talks about that domain specific metacognitive um, work that you would do Mm. and so what I might do in English could be quite different to perhaps going through you know the same principle but but what it actually looks like and how students will practice embedding that might look different in maths and it might look different in science Mm. and so I think that's been a misconception Um, also the other one that I mentioned earlier that uh, students with SEN or, or students who are younger couldn't be metacognitive and I think that's a that's a misconception as well it's all about how we we really bring that to the fore for them so that they can see us doing it and they can talk about that themselves and and, uh, it needs to be embedded in their learning day to day in order to become really skilled in it. Do you know I was was doing some work the other day on on voice and the power of our our voice and I found a brilliant quote from the author Marion Williamson and she said our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate, it is that we are powerful beyond measure. And mm-hmm. actually for us as teachers in our profession, you know, maybe that is our, our deepest fear or, or our greatest challenge or our most <laughs> exciting moment when we realize we really are, mm, as the teacher absolutely. in the classroom, powerful beyond measure to yeah. create all of those opportunities and everything that you're describing now, you know, in our across the curriculum and being subject specific and understanding and taking the need and the desire to instill the best understanding for our young people and and as a school we're driving forward and we're all working on metacognition but individually that comes down to us it does yeah it's it's what happens in that classroom day mm. by day and uh, and you see lots of talk about various things that we could do with education but ultimately those students have five or six hours with a teacher day in day out 
And it's what happens there on the ground that is going to make the most difference to their outcomes. And, and I used to joke with students that, you know, as much as I'm an expert in the classroom, as much as I'm a holder of lots and lots of information, um, I really want to make myself redundant because if they can you know, want to run with their learning and they want to explore different avenues and go home and read and research and write and do all of these things and go, and go well beyond when they finish school with me mm-hmm. to continue to learn, then that's what I want. So, I, you know, I, I want to give them and pass that on. Yeah. Um, and, and metacognition can be one way that we can do that. Yeah, that lifelong love of learning. Learning is its own reward. I remember somebody telling me that once. <laughs> <laughs> trying try to instill that in some of my year nine reluctant lads. Uh, hand lasses, bless them. So do you think, I mean, it, we're sort of beginning to touch on the idea of well-being here. Do you think that there is an, a role where metacognition can support well-being? Well, definitely, because um, not just, you know, your well-being when you're at school, but as we've talked about there with the the lifelong learning, Mm. knowing that you've got the tools and and the ability to go and learn at different points. You know, I I sometimes see people saying, you know, I'm in my 40s. Am am I too old to do an MA or am I too old to do a degree? (laughs) Well, absolutely not. But, you know, this is something we're going to constantly encounter throughout our lives. And again, it's back to that that sense of, of having some agency mm. over what you're doing. And, and again, the metacognitive processes can support you to do that. You're, you're not powerless and just waiting for somebody to come along and tell you. Mm. You can actually start to explore and unpick and take some control and direction over that, mm. even within the parameters of what we're doing within the school system. There's lots of potential. And may, I wonder if um, actually the, the COVID gaps and the time we've all been at home will have enhance that self-reliance because we haven't been in groups in classrooms in in lots of cases and and some of our young people you know I've got I've had a GCSE student going through it and actually it was all about her own self-reliance and taking what the school were giving her and then cracking on absolutely and and some will have done that really well Mm. some will have found a a, a different way to approach that but Mm. even things like with the remote teaching I I, I spoke I speak to a lot of teachers day in day out and and worked with them on their remote provision some of those students who are often quite quiet in classroom will sit back and let somebody else um, perhaps answer the question or, or, or take a lead in the lesson they were coming forward even if it was on chat as opposed to on kind of the audio Uh, they were coming forward on chat and they were putting in their ideas or asking for support. Um, and then that was leading to them being able to email, then being able to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden they, they were saying, well, actually, I need something here and I'm going to alert you to that. Whereas in the classroom, they may well have, have potentially sat back and said, no, I'll, I'll let somebody, somebody else is bound to ask that question. And then yeah. that will be fine. Yeah, It's interesting, isn't it? Lots of new ways of working and trying to capture the best of all of it. And I, and I suppose in many ways, it's about establishing the right climate so that there's a feeling of understanding and happiness about what, what it is we're asking young people to do. Absolutely. And that sense that actually it's okay to take a risk yeah. as well with it. So if you are verbalizing or, or, or making explicit um, the processes that might be going on in your head, sometimes you'll make mistakes. Yeah. You know, yeah. our, our thinking isn't, you know, it's not going to be perfect steps. 
Um, and I think that's something that's quite important for us to teach as teachers to model. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm doing a piece of writing, I might make a choice and then go, actually, oh, no, that's awful. I don't want to do that at all. So important. And show yeah. them how to do that. And again, I'll explain my choices and I'll explain my reasoning. Mm. And and that will help them to see that it's okay to to make those changes and to not always get it perfect first time. Yeah, absolutely. And ha- happy to be wrong because that's the state of learning, isn't it? You know. Yeah. Okay. A few quick fire questions at the end, okay. just to help us all leave this podcast with a few recommendations and a few interesting pointers to what we can what we can do this summer and and what we should be doing in the classroom. So, top NQT tip for metacognition? Um, I would say really reflect on your own metacognitive processes yourself. It's most likely that teachers, uh, NQT or or wherever you are at your career, will have a lot of tacit knowledge um, Mm. and things that have just become so embedded and you're fluent in them, you won't be aware of them. Mm. So I think taking that time to really think through your own thinking and your own metacognitive processes will help you to then translate that to students and give them that clarity mm. and make it explicit to them. That's brilliant advice. I love that advice because I think you're right. I think we do get to a point where it's so innate mm. that, you know, this is just how I'm, I do it and this is the, my process because, you know, by the time we get to teaching the classroom, we've, we've, we've aced education. We've gone through mm. and, and done all the steps and, and been good at it. So to then unpick that, I think that's mm. great advice so that we we understand those steps. Okay, bit of well-being, quick fire now. Top summer read recommendation. They're, they're oldies but goodies, but I think, you know, <laughs> like lying in the garden or on the beach or wherever with a Terry Pratchett, because he's going to make you giggle, he's going <laughs> to make you think, he might make you cry, but just just a wonderful writer and, and a lot to explore. It would, it would keep you going for a couple of summers uh, if you were to go back <laughs> through his back catalogue. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so Terry Pratchett. Uh, best classroom or teacher snack? Not really a snack, I suppose, but uh, and I'm not for any minute advising people for their well-being that they they don't have time for lunch, and and that was what started me off. But it's actually quite tasty, and I know I'm getting my nutrients, and then I don't worry about it. So that'd probably be my my best uh, snack for the classroom. I can have a quick swig, put it back in the drawer, and then go back to it later. What's it called again? Tell us again. Cule. It's um, it, it looks like a space drink. It's powder. You mix oh. it up with water, but lots and lots of flavours. Okay, brilliant. I'm off to go and try and find that then. And we're all thinking about the summer now, beginning to get there, you know, the the weather has warmed up. So what would your best end of term activity be? You could tell us for your students, and then also for staff. Probably the truth for both, because, you know, we often think that students um, kind of run out of school really full of energy at the end of term, and they might do that for the first five minutes, but they... (laughs) just as teachers will do, will fall on their nose and, and quickly have, have a really long sleep. And I think that would be my best advice. If you have celebrations, great, enjoy them. Go home, have a really, really long sleep. Don't feel guilty about it. And then that way you can make the most of the rest of your holiday because you don't want to carry that tiredness through with you. That's great advice. Yeah. Keep yourself comfy. Maybe a few blankets. Yeah. Snuggle up. Bit, bit, bit of comfort for you. Snuggling up well-being. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's been fantastic to talk to you about such a fascinating array. And um, it comes from such a a knowledgeable base. And so thank you for sharing your wisdom and your expertise with us today. You're more than welcome. It's a fascinating topic, as you say, and it's been lovely to talk about it with you. 
Great. And I think there's a blog coming along, isn't there? So there is. keep your eyes peeled for Zoe's blog on the OUP sites. Thanks, Zoe. All right. Thanks. Take care. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Word Up podcast from Oxford Education. To find out more about the Oxford Smart Curriculum, read the curriculum direction paper and have your say, please visit www.oxfordsecondary.com forward slash smart.